from Romans chapter 12, verse 14. Bless and do not curse. Lord, we thank you for this day, this beautiful day that you have given us to worship you. Today we've gathered around your throne as your people and we've we've lifted our voices and we've heard the fiddle and the pipe and we've declared our thanks and our praise to you. We do this in anticipation of that great and that good day when we will gather around the throne of the Lamb proclaiming his worthiness and his beauty and his holiness with every tongue and tribe on the face of this good earth. And Lord, we thank you for those moments where the future invades the present and we are just in your presence together and we thank you, God, that as we draw near to you, you, you fulfill your promise by drawing near to us. God, we thank you for your presence among your people today. And now as we open your word together, we ask you to speak, speak that our souls may hear. We ask you to speak a word of encouragement and correction and guidance and life. We come before you, God. We come before you hungry and expectant. And we ask you to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We ask you to give us tender hearts that would receive your word as a seed planted in rich soil. God, we pray that you would give us feet that would walk quickly to do your will, that you would strengthen our hands for work in this world, that, that our deeds would be like your very own. And God, we pray that a word of life and hope and testimony would be found on our tongues. Lord, this is our prayer in the strong name of the Trinity. And we pray together this morning saying, amen and amen. Friends, please be seated. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 12. This is our third sermon from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 21. Uh, we are spending three, three weeks looking at these passages of Scripture. We're gathering around the theme of squeezed. Uh, the Scripture calls us not to be squeezed into the pattern of the world around us, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And we've looked at some very life-giving commands in Romans chapter 12, 1 to 21. Commands like, do not be conformed, but, but rather in view of the mercy of God to present yourself as a priest and a God, present yourself this, this wild offering of your life, your life to God. We've seen the, the command to not be conceited, uh, but rather to be humble. Uh, and in doing so, we push back this pressure to be squeezed into the pattern of the world around us. And today, we'll linger over this beautiful command to not curse, uh, but rather to be people that bless. When you look at Romans 12, 1 to 21, once you begin to realize that this is a, a, a group of sentences that, that lays out before us a path to choose. There is the way of this world, the, the pattern of life that has been judged by God that's, that's passing away, uh, that's set up against his wisdom and his goodness and his knowledge and his character, and then the will of God, which is pleasing and perfect and good. It's a, it's a choice between the way of God and the way of the world to make it very stark between good and evil. And we're called to, to battle against these forces that, that press and push 
and squeeze these forces that would rob and kill and destroy. We, those of us that follow Christ, we're priests unto God. And we have a unique relationship with God, and we have a unique role to play in this world, and we're called again and again to choose God and His way. And every day, because of that, we enter into a scrap, just a pure own fight. I reread Walker Percy's novel Lancelot recently. Some of these themes are, are in Lancelot, only in sort of an unfiltered kind of way. I can't read all of Lancelot from this pulpit, but, 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 but the light of God does shine through. And, and it's really a book about a, a conversation between two men. Uh, one of the men's name is Lance Lamar. He's sort of a broken-down lawyer from Louisiana who has a, a mental break and, and winds up in an institution. Uh, and his psychiatrist is named Percival. Uh, some of you are putting the pieces together in your mind. Uh, but this psychiatrist is also a priest, and he can't tell if he's a, a, a priest that sort of lost his way uh, or a physician that's just sort of half-baked. Uh, but there is Percival, and there is Lance Lamar, and most of the book is just a conversation between these two men about Lance's mental health and about the state of the world as it is. And toward the end of the novel... Uh, Percival comes into Lance's little room in the institution, and he's dressed this day in his priestly garb. He has on his clerical collar, and Lance looks at him, and he asks these questions. He said, how come you're wearing your priest uniform today? He said, are you girding for battle or dressed up like Lee for the surrender? Those of us that name the name of Christ... We don't wear special clothing, at least not all of us. But that is our identity and that is our garb. We are priests unto God. And this day and every day we must choose if we walk into this world walking as lead to the surrender. To be formed and shaped by this world that is around us. Or if we have dressed ourselves. And girded ourselves for the battle. Romans 12, 1 to 21 invites us to the fight. And it reminds us that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. And it reminds us that the banner, God's banner over us, is love. And it goes forward to define that and help us flesh it out in our own mind, and in our own thought. So this call not to conform, that's a call to the battle and to the priestly role of laying ourselves before God. And this call not to be conceited is a call to the battle, but to a, a countercultural approach to life. Uh, the kind of world that we live in celebrates swagger and confidence and brashness and winning. And the way of the cross calls us to humility that is true strength because his strength invades our very weakness. And today, we're called to the life that overcomes the darkness. A life that says, do not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. A call not to curse, but to bless. 
our verses for focus begin in verse 9 and they go down to, to verse 21. You'll need your number two lead pencil today because we'll track these verses together toward the end. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. It is possible, if it is, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, some people look at these verses and they say, what you have here is you have an apostle that just got really anxious and he, and he got excited and, and he was writing really fast and he was chunking jello against the wall hoping it would stick. And it was just this rag bag of, of miscellaneous instructions. And others who come to this see more of a, a symmetry to it, uh, more, more, more of a logic to it. One of those people is John Stott, who spent so many years giving pastoral leadership to the church, serving a concrete expression uh, of, the, of the body of Christ. Uh, and he says, no, this is not a rag bag of miscellaneous instructions. He says this, he says, each staccato imperative adds a fresh insight to the apostles' recipe for love. He sees each one of these commands, and there's a host of them, each of these commands as an important ingredient in Christ-like love being lived out in, in the world as it is. You may think of it as a, as, a, as a dozen eggs, and each one is necessary for the cake to rise, uh, for, for it to turn out right. And if you miss one, you, you've missed something, and, and you taste that, and you just, you're just like, something's not right. You ever had that cake? Somebody brought you that cake, uh, and, and you're grateful for that cake, but you know something, somewhere, oh, something's been left out. Something's just not right. And so he gives us a list of ingredients, uh, and we're cracking the eggs today one by one. So my encouragement is write these down as we go through. I'll go through them quickly. And then spend some time this week back in this text of Scripture, back with these imperatives, and allow them to serve as a mirror for your own life as you judge the condition of your heart against this beautiful teaching of Scripture, these beautiful ingredients for Christ-like love. Do you have your pencil ready, friend? Here we go. The first is that love must be sincere. He calls for sincerity in love. Love must not hide behind a mask. 
If this world that is pressing on us, this world that is squeezing us, demonstrates anything, uh, it demonstrates that love can be faked. It demonstrates the power of flattery over sincerity. And Paul says, if you want to follow the way of Christ, if you want your love to be Christ-like love, then then you cannot wear that that mask of insincerity. You have to step away from that. Come out from behind that and, and allow love to be sincere. Love can be sincere when we recognize that everyone on the face of the earth is a person created in the image of God. When we recognize in the deep places of our heart that everybody we come into contact with is a person of God's affection, a person for whom Christ gave his life. That means you don't even have to like people in order to come to the place where you can sincerely love them. And in sincerely love them, God can bring you to the point where you might be able to tolerate them. And certainly where you can live toward them in such a way that brings glory and honor to God. Love must be sincere. That's the first egg cracked. The second one, uh, we would label it as discernment. He says, hate what is evil. He's like, there goes Paul. He's talking about love and he's slipping that hate in there. That's because he's speaking with wisdom. He says, you have to understand that love, for it to be sincere, uh, has to be true, and it has to ring true, uh, and, the, and you have to discern good uh, from evil. Love is not some saccharine, sentimental, fuzzy kind of thing. Love is the character and the nature of God. And there are many times where the character and nature of God's love has a hard edge on it, and it's tough. Friends, if I looked at you and I said, you know what my very favorite hobby is? I like to take double-edged sabers, like a big bucket full of them, and I like to juggle those while I drink Thunderbird gas station wine. I mean, everybody's got to have a hobby. Maybe I choose that one. It would not be a loving thing for you to look at me and say, dude, can I watch? You just want to see somebody cut off a finger. The loving thing for you to do in that moment is say, are you serious? Are you serious? And to enter into some real life together. Love for it to be sincere has to be discerning. It's an ingredient in the cake. The third, we're going to go through them quickly. The third one is affection. Love has to have genuine affection. Paul writes about this brotherly, sisterly kind of love. It's, it's, it's the kind of love that a parent would have for a child, an, an action type of affection uh, that's lived out through deeds uh, and sincerity. This means that we have to abandon the notion that we as Christians are primarily consumers and connoisseurs of religious goods and services. It means we have to view ourselves as mothers and fathers and sons and brothers and sisters in the faith and that we are stuck with each other and that's a beautiful and a good thing. Affection. How about this? This is number four if you're keeping up. Honor. Honor. He calls us to a life of mutual honor. That is respect and esteem and value and recognizing that the other is important. This is an opportunity for us to judge our heart in a very critical manner. We live in the world that, that says that people are just like hammers and bulldozers, that people are like calculators and pencils. 
that people are useful and they are to be used. Friends, we can either use things and love people or we can fall in love with things and stuff and the material things uh, of life and we can use people to get those things. Do not be squeezed. This world that has been judged by God says that people are items to be used. And God said that they were created in His image, objects to be loved, living beings to be loved. When we use people, we not only dishonor them, but we dishonor their Maker. And their precious Savior, honor. The next ingredient, enthusiasm. Enthusiasm. It says, keep your spiritual fervor. Be aglow in the spirit. The image here is likely the image of a cook pot and the heat that brings the water to bubble. I love, I love the way that the voice rendered this. The, the voice translation of Scripture rendered 12, verse 11. It said, let your spirit be on fire, bubbling up and boiling over as you serve the Lord. This means allow your life to, to, to be touched by the grace and the mercy of the supply of the Spirit of Jesus to the point that you are effective, that you're getting things done. I understand this because I love to cook things. I imagine that surprises you. Uh, but my grandfather was a great cook, and, and he taught me how to cook. And I, and I love to cook, and I love to cook for people. I like to boil shrimp and crawfish. I like to fry turkeys for a bunch of people. I like to fire up the smoker. A few years ago, my family gave me a gift. This is some high-tech red neckery right here. Uh, this, is, this is an infrared thermometer. Now, I, I don't have a side gig as an AC man. If your AC goes out, I can't help you fix it. But I got this. This is an industrial tool in order to test the temperature of the cook pots. Uh, so if I have some shrimp boiling over here, I have some, some, some grease over here for the catfish, I can just push my little, look, at the, look I've, got a, I've got a laser beam. Look at that. If we had cats in here, they'd be going crazy right now. Uh, but you have the laser beam. And it just says, uh, it's 70 degrees in here. For those of you who are too hot, too cold, it is 70.8 degrees in this room right now. And, uh, and so if, if, you're, if the oil is not hot enough, the, the fish is greasy and awful and nasty, we just put up and you can tell. Uh, because the temperature, the temperature of the flame that's underneath those, those big cook pots now and, and forever has been very, very important, very vital. And the people that Paul's writing to, they all understood this. These were people that, that kindled fires and put pots on them, and, and they used that hot water uh, to, to boil food and to make food and to clean, cleanse their clothes. All this kind of stuff has been important for a long, long time. And this, this image, this image of the heat of God's radiant presence, uh, of God's touch, of His grace coming into our life, and, and giving strength and power to it. Uh, power from outside. Enabling us to do what we have to do. And so Paul's coming. He's coming down in chapter 12. Uh, and he's been contending for the gospel. He's been, he's been sharing about God and his mercy and his grace. Writing and writing and writing and pouring his heart out. 
And it might have been in a moment of, of, of exhaustion, uh, but he comes to the place in his writing where he reminds them, no, no, keep, keep your life fervent. Keep your passion for God fervent. Open yourself up to the grace and the strength that comes from God. And, and when, when you allow yourself to be influenced by God, your life becomes properly enthusiastic, properly filled with God. And your life is effective and it's strong. So how do we do that? We humble ourselves before God and we ask for His strength and His grace. How do we do that? We put off and we put on and we lay our lives before Him in view of God's mercy. And as we live our life in front of Him in this humble kind of way, we receive peace that surpasses our understanding. We receive strength for the challenges of the day. And the challenges and trouble of the day, we receive sufficient strength from the hand and the grace of God. 1 Samuel chapter 30, David had one of the worst days any leaders ever had, and they wanted to kill him. Many of us have been in positions of leadership. We've never had a day where people have literally wanted to kill us. That's a bad day. And it's said of David in this day, he didn't quit, he didn't resign, he didn't try to shoot anybody. He didn't moan or gripe. It said that David encouraged himself in the Lord. If we're going to have the appropriate grit that it takes to live lives that are effective in this world for the glory of God, then we learn along the way how to keep that fire burning as we open our lives to God. We learn how to encourage ourselves in Him. Number six, if we're still cracking eggs, is the principle of patience and the call to patience. He said, Rejoice in hope, be patient in your challenges and your afflictions, persist in prayer. When you put together patience and persistence, what you have is patience. Without persistence, patience is just despair. It's quitting. It's giving up. But when you have hope and when you have persistence, patience is godly patience. And it's the fuel of life. Here we have the creative tension that is the yet, not yet of the kingdom of God. It is the hope and the promise that God will make all things right. And right now, in this moment, as things are not all right, we have the promise of his presence and the strength and his grace. Patience is an ingredient for love. Next one, generosity. He said give to support others. Have, have a life that, that flows out. Here's a great way to check our life on this. There's no more concrete expression of our life on this earth than what we do with our things and our resources and our money. And here we have this call to the generous life. The eighth ingredient is the principle of hospitality. Back in verse 10, we had this call to brotherly love. And here we have this, this call to loving the stranger. Just the opposite of xenophobia. We have this love uh, of the stranger. Uh, and it's a beautiful kind of thing. This described here in this text as hospitality. And we're called not to endure it, but to pursue it. To be people who go out of our way to create space for others to come into the life and the rhythm that is the grace of God. When you volunteer and you're part of an international Bible study, you are pursuing hospitality. 
When you're like the Durham's and you refuse to sit in the same place uh, every Sunday, but you hawk out people around you. Hey, they're not just nosy people. They want to get to know people and they want to create a space for people. And they want to know the other and make that possible. When we have a life that's oriented outward, then we are people that are pursuing the love of the other. And that is an ingredient in a love that is a Christ-like love. Ninth one, principle of goodwill, wanting the very best for others. How do we know if we're living out Christ-like love? Do we really want that's right for other people? Or could we care less? The tenth one, and there's 12 in all today. The tenth one is sympathy or empathy. The call to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those that weep. Now, friends... This invites us to practice good sense. And that's risky. I remember one time when I was a kid, I was working for my dad, and I came up with this great idea, uh, and he just looked at me and said, Son, you are not paid to think. <laughs> you know, and sometimes that's the right thing. Sometimes we just need to kind of be quiet and know our role. Here, Paul's calling us to practice this discernment that he called us to earlier in the thing. And he said, you rejoice with those who rejoice and you weep with those who weep. Years ago, Mark Twain said, there are people who can do all fine and heroic things but one. Keep from telling their happiness to the unhappy. How you doing? My mother just had a stroke and we can't figure out what to do. We're trying to make sense of it. Oh, man, that's bad. I just got a new pony. That's a little extreme, but people just do that kind of thing all the time. I remember I was subbing for Dr. Cook. Sarah was about to have uh, some treatments, uh, and we prayed for them before class started. And one of the students prayed the most beautiful prayer. God, protect them from those who will come by and say stupid things today. <laughs> beautiful prayer. Such a great prayer. Uh, but sometimes, like the people Twain wrote about, well, we can do heroic things, but we can't keep from that. We can't keep from that. Uh, have some sense. We're called to have an empathetic heart as we walk through the world. We have to be somewhat careful here, though, because we don't want to get in a place where we celebrate despair. It has become somewhat fashionable today to trade some kind of phony authenticity for a pursuit of God's joy and holiness. That's not what this is talking about. Oh, we're just all broken, messed up people. Let's be that together. Yay. No. We are Easter people, and we're called to life. But we're called to be empathetic and sympathetic as we walk through this world to be people of humility and love and grace. Eleventh one. Harmony. We're called to a life of harmony, a life together. Now, there's two things here that help us with this. There's this call to be of the same mind, and there is a call to set our eyes, our mind, on things that are higher. If you'll excuse this, this spatial illustration here, our vertical relationship with God enables us to have proper horizontal relationships with one another. If we pursue being of the same mind strictly on, on horizontal uh, planes, then we make a royal raging mess of it. And what we end up is a Tower of Babel spirituality that's not good for anybody. 
But when we recognize that our common connection is with God first and then as related to God to one another, then our, ours is more of a Pentecostal grace that as we are together in one place seeking together God, we are touched by His mercy and His grace. And the final one, friends, once again, He calls us to humility. A Christ-like love makes no room for snobbery. I love the way the Jerusalem Bible renders verse 16. Never be condescending, but make real friends with the poor. We're called to be people who love people for Christ's sake. And through the love and the grace that he provides. And this extends to love for the enemy. We're called here to practice toward those that are our enemies. Practical, good, gracious action. That we're to serve them. We're to pray for them. And in doing so, it says, we heap burning coals on their head. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. That sounds awesome. Let's just cut out the middleman and let me dump the coals. Because you think of this in terms of some kind of punitive strike. You know, some kind of scud missile attack on their head. And it's like this sort of trick, like, hey, this is how God works. I'll be really nice to them, and because I do that, God will get them. It's not really what this is about. This is about giving proper space for the possibility of repentance and maybe even reconciliation. It's about having the good sense to let God be God and to freeing ourselves of the pressure to try to be God. And what God called us to do is to do our stuff, and that stuff is to serve in the name of Christ and let the chips fall where they'll fall. Forgive the poker metaphor. Not a rag bag collection of miscellaneous stuff, but a recipe. A recipe for living out in this world the love of Jesus. And we can do that when we have a strong view of his mercy and we live our life conditioned by the gospel, the cross, the empty tomb. We can do that when we lay our lives as priests before him and say, here, here it is, God, take it. And we continue to do that over and over and over again as we live as his priests. We can do that when we refuse conceit and we humble ourselves before him. We do that when we follow his commandments. And these commandments are not burdensome, but they are life-giving. They're a yoke that's made just for us. And we can live them in the strength he provides. The question is, will we? God, thank you so much. Thank you so much for the commands of Scripture, the, the commands you bind us to that give us life. Lord, help us through the power of your Spirit to live in such a way that we reflect Christ in this world. Forgive us the many times that we have failed you this week, and God, empower us to live ways uh, that bring glory to you in the upcoming days. Lord, as we stand and sing, attend our commitments with your grace and your peace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our hymn of commitment today. David, come and lead us.